Tuesday, August third, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, things are going well on the political front. Italy has banned the fascist party. The people are fighting the fascists in many places. Even the army has joined the fight. How can a country like that continue to wage war against England? Our beautiful radio was taken away last week. Dussel was very angry at Mr. Kugler for turning it in on the appointed day. Dussel is slipping lower and lower in my estimation, and he's already below zero. Whatever he says about politics, history, geography, or anything else is so ridiculous that I hardly dare repeat it. Hitler will fade from history. The harbor in Rotterdam is better than the one in Hamburg. The English are idiots for not taking the opportunity to bomb Italy to smithereens, etc. We just had a third raid. I decided to grit my teeth and practice being courageous. Mrs. Van Dam, the one who always said "let them fall" and better to end with a bang than not to end at all, is the worst cowardly one among us. She was shaking like a leaf this morning and even burst into tears. She was comforted by her husband, with whom she recently declared a truce after a week of squabbling. I nearly got sentimental at the sight. Moshi has now proved, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that having a cat has disadvantages as well as advantages. The whole house is crawling with fleas, and is getting worse each day. Mister Clayman sprinkled yellow powder in every nook and cranny, but the fleas haven't taken the slightest notice. It's making us all very jittery. We're forever imagining a bite on our arms and legs or other parts of our bodies, so we leap up and do a few exercises. Since it gives us an excuse to take a better look at our arms and necks, but now we're paying the price for having had so little physical exercise. We're so stiff we can hardly turn our heads. The real calisthenics fell by the wayside long ago. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, August fourth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, now that we've been in hiding for a little over a year, you know a great deal about our lives. Still. I can't possibly tell you everything, since it's all so different compared to ordinary times and ordinary people. Nevertheless, to give you a closer look into our lives, from time to time, I'll describe parts of an ordinary day. I'll start with the evening and night. Nine in the evening, bedtime always begins in the annex with an enormous hustle and bustle. Chairs are shifted, beds pulled out, blankets unfolded. Nothing stays where it is during the daytime. I sleep on a small divan, which is only five feet long. So we have to add a few chairs to make it longer. Comforter, sheets, pillows, blankets—everything has to be removed from Dussel's bed, where it's kept during the day. In the next room, there's a terrible creaking. That's Margaret's folding bed being set up. More blankets and pillows. Anything to make the wooden slats a bit more comfortable. Upstairs, it sounds like thunder. But it's only Mrs. Fandy's bed being shoved against the window, so that Her Majesty, arrayed in her pink bed jacket, can sniff the night air through her delicate little nostrils. Nine o'clock. After Peter's finished, it's my turn for the bathroom. I wash myself from head to toe, and more often than not, I find a tiny flea floating in the sink. I brush my teeth, curl my hair. Manicure my nails and dab peroxide on my upper lip to bleach the black hairs. All this in less than half an hour. Nine thirty, I throw on my bathrobe with soap in one hand and potty hairpins 
panties, curlers, and a wad of cotton in the other, I hurry out of the bathroom. The next in line invariably calls me back to remove the gracefully curved but unsightly hairs that I've left in the sink. Ten o'clock. Time to put up the blackout screen and say goodnight. For the next fifteen minutes at least, the house is filled with the creaking of beds and a sigh of broken springs, and then, provided our upstairs neighbours aren't having a marital spat in bed, all is quiet. 11.30. The bathroom door creaks. A narrow strip of light falls into the room. Squeaking shoes, a large coat, even larger than the man inside it. Dusso is returning from his nightly work in Mr. Cooler's office. I hear him shuffling back and forth for ten whole minutes, the rustle of paper and the bed being made up. Then the figure disappears again, and the only sound is the occasional suspicious noise from the bathroom. Approximately three o'clock, I have to get up to use the tin can under my bed, which to be on the safe side has a rubber mat underneath a case of leaves. I always hold my breath while I go, since it clatters into the can like a brook down a mountainside. The potty is returned to its place, and the figure in the white nightgown climbs back into bed. A certain somebody lies awake for about fifteen minutes, listening to the sounds of the night. In the first place, to hear whether there are any burglars downstairs, and then to the various beds upstairs, next door, and in my room, to tell whether the others are asleep or half awake. This is no fun, especially when it concerns a member of the family named Doctor Dusso. First, there is the sound of a fish gasping for air, and this is repeated nine or ten times. Then the lips are moistened profusely. This is alternated with little smacking sounds, followed by a long period of tossing and turning and rearranging the pillows. After five minutes of perfect quiet, the same sequence repeats itself three more times. After which he's presumably lulled himself back to sleep for a while. Sometimes the guns go off during the night between one and four. I'm never aware of it before it happens. But all of a sudden, I find myself standing beside my bed out of sheer habit. Occasionally, I'm dreaming so deeply that I realize only when my dream is over that the shooting has stopped and that I've remained quietly in my room. But usually, I wake up. Then I grab a pillow and a handkerchief, throw on my robe and slippers, and dash next door to father. Just the way Margaret described in his birthday poem, when shots ring out in the dark of night, the door creaks open and into sight. Come a hanky, a pillow, a figure in white. Once I've reached the big bed, the worst is over, except when the shooting is extra loud. Six forty-five. Ring the alarm clock, which raises its shrill voice at any hour of the day or night, whether you want it to or not. Creak when Mrs. Vandy turns it off. Squeak. Mr. Vandy gets up, puts on the water, and races to the bathroom. Seven fifteen. The door creaks again. Dusso can go to the bathroom. Alone at last, I remove the blackout screen, and a new day begins in the annex. Yours, Anne. Thursday, August fifth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, today let's talk about the lunch break. It's twelve thirty. The whole gang breathes a sigh of relief. Mr. Van Maren, the man with the shady past, and Mr. De Kock have gone home for lunch. Upstairs, you can hear the thud of the vacuum cleaner on Mrs. Vandy's beautiful and only rug. Margaret tucks a few books under her arm and heads for the class for slow learners, which is what Dusso seems to be. Pim goes and sits in a corner with his constant companion Dickens, in hopes of finding a bit of peace and quiet. 
Mother hastens upstairs to help the busy little housewife, and I tidy up both the bathroom and myself at the same time. Twelve forty-five. One by one, they trickle in. First, Mr. Geese, and then either Mr. Clayman or Mr. Kugler, followed by Bab and sometimes even me. One, clustered round the radio, they all listen rapidly to the BBC. This is the only time the members of the Annex family don't interrupt each other, since even Mr. Van Dan can't argue with the speaker. One fifteen, food distribution. Everyone from downstairs gets a cup of soup plus dessert, if there happens to be any. A contented Mr. Geese sits on the divan or leans against the desk with his newspaper, cup, and usually the cat at his side. If one of the three is missing, he doesn't hesitate to let his protest be heard. Mr. Clayman relates the latest news from town, and he's an excellent source. Mr. Kugler hurries up the stairs, gives a short but solid knock on the door, and comes in either wringing his hands or rubbing them in glee. Depending on whether he's quiet and in a bad mood, or talkative and in a good mood, one forty-five. Everyone rises from the table and goes about their business. Margaret and Mother do the dishes. Mr. and Mrs. Van D head for the divan. Peter for the attic. Father for his divan. Do so too, and Anne does her homework. What comes next is the quietest hour of the day. When they're all asleep, there are no disturbances. To judge by his face, do so is dreaming of food. But I don't look at him long, because the time whizzes by, and before you know it, it will be four p.m. And the pedantic Doctor Dusso will be standing with the clock in his hand because I'm one minute late clearing off the table. Yours, Anne. Saturday, August seventh, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, a few weeks ago I started writing a story, something I made up from beginning to end, and I've enjoyed it so much that the products of my pen are piling up. Yours, Anne. Monday, August ninth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, we now continue with a typical day in the annex. Since we've already had lunch, it's time to describe dinner. Mr. Van Dan is served first and takes a generous portion of whatever he likes. Usually joins in the conversation, never fails to give his opinion. Once he's spoken, his words is final. If anyone dares to suggest otherwise, Mr. Van D can put up a good fight. Oh, he can hiss like a cat. But I'd rather he didn't. Once you've seen it, you never want to see it again. His opinion is the best. He knows the most about everything. Granted, the man has a good head on his shoulders, but is swelled to no small degree. Madam, actually, the best thing would be to say nothing. Some days, especially when a foul mood is on the way, her face is hard to read. If you analyze the discussions, you realize she's not the subject, but the guilty party. A fact everyone prefers to ignore. Even so, you could call her the instigator, stirring up trouble. Now that's what Mrs. Van D calls fun, stirring up trouble between Mrs. Frank and Anne Margaret and Mr. Frank aren't quite as easy. But let's return to the table. Mrs. Van D may think she doesn't always get enough, but that's not the case. The choicest potatoes, the tastiest morsel, the tenderest bit of whatever there is—that's Madame's motto. The others can all have their turn, as long as I get the best. Her second watchword is keep talking. As long as somebody's listening, it doesn't seem to occur to her to wonder whether they're interested. She must think that whatever Mrs. Van Dan says will interest everyone. Smile coquettishly, pretend you know everything, offer everyone a piece of advice, and mother them. That's sure to make a good impression. But if you take a better look. 
the good impression fades. One, she's hardworking. Two, cheerful. Three, coquettish, and sometimes a cute face. That's Petronella Van Den. The third diner says very little. Young Mister Van Den is usually quiet and hardly makes his presence known. As far as his appetite is concerned, he is a Donaldian vessel that never gets full. Even after the most substantial meal, he can look you calmly in the eye and claim he could have eaten twice as much. Number four, Margaret, eats like a bird and doesn't talk at all. She eats only vegetables and fruit. Spoiled, in the opinion of the Van Dens, too little exercise and fresh air in ours. Beside her, Mama, has a hearty appetite. Does she share the talking? No one has the impression, as they do with Mrs. Van Den, that this is the housewife. What's the difference between the two? Well, Mrs. Van D does the cooking, and Mother does the dishes and polishes the furniture. Number six and seven. I won't say much about father and me. The former is the most modest person at the table. He always looks to see whether the others have been served first. He needs nothing for himself. The best things are for the children. He's goodness personified. Seated next to him is the annex's little bundle of nerves. Do so. Help yourself. Keep your eyes on the food. Eat and don't talk. And if you have to say something, then for goodness' sake, talk about food. That doesn't lead to quarrels, just to bragging. He consumes enormous portions, and no, is not part of his vocabulary, whether the food is good or bad. Pants that come up to his chest, a red jacket, black patent leather slippers, and horn-rimmed glasses—that's how he looks when he's at work at the little table, always studying and never progressing. This is interrupted only by his afternoon nap, food, and his favorite spot, the bathroom. Three, four, or five times a day, there's bound to be someone waiting outside the bathroom door, hopping impatiently from one foot to another, trying to hold it in and barely managing. Does do so care? Not a whit. From seven fifteen to seven thirty, from twelve thirty to one, from two to two fifteen, from four to four fifteen, from six to six fifteen, from eleven thirty to twelve. You can set your watch by them. These are the times for his regular sessions. He never deviates or lets himself be swayed by the voices outside the door, begging him to open up before a disaster occurs. Number nine is not part of our annex family, although she does share our house and table. Heb has a healthy appetite. She cleans her plate and isn't choosy. Heb's easy to please, and that pleases us. She can be characterized as follows: cheerful, good-humored, kind, and willing. Tuesday, August tenth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, a new idea. During meals, I talk more to myself than to the others, which has two advantages. First, they're glad they don't have to listen to my continuous chatter, and second, I don't have to get annoyed by their opinions. I don't think my opinions are stupid, but other people do, so it's better to keep them to myself. I apply the same tactic when I have to eat something I loathe. I put the dish in front of me, pretend it's delicious, avoid looking at it as much as possible, and it's gone before I've had time to realize what it is. When I get up in the morning, another very disagreeable moment. I leap out of bed, think to myself, "You'll be slipping back under the covers soon." Walk to the window, take down blackout screen, sniff at the crack until I feel a bit of fresh air, and I'm awake. I strip the bed as fast as I can so I won't be tempted to get back in. Do you know what mother calls this sort of thing? The art of living. Isn't that a funny expression? 
We've all been a little confused this past week because our dearly beloved Westertorian bells have been carted off to be melted down for the war, so we have no idea of the exact time, either night or day. I still have hopes that they'll come up with a substitute made of tin or copper or some such thing to remind the neighborhood of the clock. Everywhere I go, upstairs or down, they all cast admiring glances at my feet, which are adorned by a pair of exceptionally beautiful shoes. Meep managed to snap them up for twenty-seven fifty guilders. Burgundy-colored suede and leather with medium-sized high heels. I feel as if I were on stilts and look even taller than I already am. Yesterday was my unlucky day. I pricked my right thumb with the blunt end of a big needle. As a result, Margaret had to peel potatoes for me, and writing was awkward. Then I bumped into the cupboard door so hard it nearly knocked me over, and was scolded for making such a racket. They won't let me run water to bathe my forehead, so now I'm walking around with a giant lump over my right eye. To make matters worse. The little toe on my right foot got stuck in the vacuum cleaner. It bled and hurt, but my other ailments were already causing me so much trouble that I let this one slide, which was stupid of me, because now I'm walking around with an infected toe. What with the salve, the gauze, and the tape, I can't get my heavenly new shoe on my foot. Dusso has put us in danger for the upteen time. He actually had me bring him a book, an anti-Muslimi tirade, which has been banned. On the way here, she was knocked down by an SS motorcycle. She lost her head and shouted, "You brutes!" and went on her way. I don't dare think what would have happened if she'd been taken down to headquarters. Yours, Anne. A daily chore in our little community: peeling potatoes. One person goes to get some newspapers, another the knives, the third the potatoes, and the fourth the water. Mister Dusso begins. He may not always peel them very well, but he does peel nonstop. Glancing left and right to see if everyone is doing it the way he does. No, they're not. Look, Anne, I'm taking peeler in my hand like so and going from top to bottom. Nine, not so, but so. I think my way is easier, Mister Dusso. I say tentatively, but this is best way, Anne. This you can take from me. Of course, it is no matter. You do the way you want. We go on peeling. I glance at Dusso out of the corner of my eye, lost in thought. He shakes his head but says no more. I keep on peeling. Then I look at Father on the other side of me. To Father, peeling potatoes is not a chore, but precise work. When he reads, he has a deep wrinkle in the back of his head. But when he's preparing potatoes, beans, or vegetables, he seems to be totally absorbed in his task. He puts on his potato peeling face, and when it's set in that particular way, it would be impossible for him to turn out anything less than a perfectly peeled potato. I keep on working. I glance up for a second, but that's all the time I need. Mrs. Fandy is trying to attract Dusso's attention. She starts by looking in his direction, but Dusso pretends not to notice. She winks, but Dusso goes on peeling. She laughs, but Dusso still doesn't look up. Then Mother laughs too, but Dusso pays them no mind. Having failed to achieve her goal, Mrs. Fandy is obliged to change tactics. There's a brief silence. Then she says, "Putty, why don't you put on an apron?" Otherwise, I'll have to spend all day tomorrow trying to get spots out of your suit. I'm not getting it dirty. Another brief silence. Putty, why don't you sit down? I'm fine this way. I like standing up. Silence. Putty, look out! Now you're splashing. I know, mummy, but I'm being careful. Mrs. Van D casts about for another topic. 
Tell me, Putty, why aren't the British carrying out any bombing raids today? Because the weather's bad, Kerry. But yesterday it was such nice weather, and they weren't flying then either. Let's drop the subject. Why can't a person talk about that or offer an opinion? Well, why in the world not? Oh, be quiet, Mummy. Mister Frank always answers his wife. Mister Van Dee is trying to control himself. This remark always rubs him the wrong way. But Missus Van Dee's not one to quit. Oh, there's never going to be an invasion. Mister Van Dee turns white, and when she notices it, Missus Van Dee turns red. But she's not about to be deterred. The British aren't doing a thing. The bomb bursts, and now shut up for crying out loud. Mother can barely stifle a laugh, and I stare straight ahead. Scenes like these are repeated almost daily, unless they've just had a terrible fight. In that case, neither Mister nor Missus Van Dee says a word. It's time for me to get some more potatoes. I go up to the attic, where Peter is busy picking fleas from the cat. He looks up. The cat notices it, and whoosh, he's gone. Out the window and into the rain gutter. Peter swears. I laugh and slip out of the room. Freedom in the annex. Five thirty. Babs' arrival signals the beginning of our nightly freedom. Things get going right away. I go upstairs with Bab, who usually has her dessert before the rest of us. The moment she sits down, Mrs. Fandy begins stating her wishes. Her list usually starts with, "Oh, by the way, Bab, something else I'd like." Bab winks at me. Mrs. Fandy doesn't miss a chance to make her wishes known to whoever comes upstairs. It must be one of the reasons none of them like to go up there. Five forty-five. Bab leaves. I go down two floors to have a look around. First to the kitchen, then to the private office, and then to the coal bin to open the cat door for Mushi. After a long tour of inspection, I wind up in Mister Cougar's office. Mister Van Dan is combing all the drawers and files for today's mail. Peter picks up Bosch and the warehouse key. Pim locks the typewriters upstairs. Margaret looks around for a quiet place to do her office work. Mrs. Van Dee puts a kettle of water on the stove. Mother comes down the stairs with a pan of potatoes. We all know our jobs. Soon Peter comes back from the warehouse. The first question they ask him is whether he's remembered the bread. No, he hasn't. He crouches before the door to the front office to make himself as small as possible and crawls on his hands and knees to the steel cabinet, takes out the bread and starts to leave. At any rate, that's what he intends to do. But before he knows what's happened, Moshi has jumped over him and gone to sit under the desk. Peter looks all around him. Aha! There's the cat. He crawls back into the office and grabs the cat by the tail. Moshi hisses. Peter sighs. What has he accomplished? Moshi's now sitting by the window, licking herself, very pleased at having escaped Peter's clutches. Peter has no choice but to lure her with a piece of bread. Moshi takes the bait. Follows him out, and the door closes. I watch the entire scene through a crack in the door. Mister Van Dan is angry and slams the door. Margaret and I exchange looks and think the same thing. He must have worked himself into a rage again because of some blunder on Mister Cougar's part, and he's forgotten all about the cat company next door. Another step is heard in the hallway. Dusso comes in. Goes toward the window with an air of propriety, stiffs, coughs, sneezes, and clears his throat. He's out of luck. It was Pepper. He continues on to the front office. The curtains are open, which means he can't get at his writing paper. He disappears with a scowl. Margaret and I exchange another glance. One last page for his sweetheart tomorrow. 
I hear her say. I nod in agreement. An elephant's tread is heard on the stairway. It's do so, seeking comfort in his favorite spot. We continue working. Knock, knock, knock. Three taps means dinner time. Instigator. Instigator. Now, a person who brings about or initiates something. Rap. Rapidly. Advert. In a way that shows so much interest in one particular thing that you are not aware or anything else.